I think that we can all agree that context really matters. How often have you seen an image or a message or maybe a headline and without the whole context found it to be a little bit confusing or maybe you misunderstood or somebody else misunderstood? Well, I want to highlight today um, how whom a message is addressed to or sent to can widely change its meaning and its importance and maybe even its urgency. So I'm going to show you some text messages and I'm going to have a look at how who they're addressed to really change the meaning. So the first message is massive blockage, going to need you to come remove it. Now, if this was sent to a cardiovascular surgeon, as we'll see on the next slide, all of a sudden we go, okay, medical emergency, very, very urgent. That's really shaping our context. But say, let's move this up. Say it was sent on the next slide to Bruce, who is our uh, congregation's resident plumber. Uh, very different meaning, maybe less urgent, probably more smelly. Now, our, our next message is pick up before 6pm, otherwise the building will be locked and the staff will go home. Now, if this was sent to the local postie, we think, okay, that's fine, you know, it's not that urgent. Parcel can stay there overnight unattended and get delivered the next day. But if this message is sent to the parents and guardians of our youth group, um, you know, it's a bit more urgent where you don't want to lock the children in the church overnight. So, well, something you might not have noticed about this series is that each week we've looked at the contents of these oracles, but each of the sermons, each of these oracles from Haggai that we've had, they've actually been addressed to different people. So in the first week, that first oracle uh, was addressed to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zodadak, the high priest. Then in our second week, it was to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all of the remaining people. And then last week, the oracle that Deb brought us in her message was just addressed to Joshua, the high priest, and that's because it was addressing things about holiness and spirituality and the religiosity of the land. Now, today, our final oracle is addressed just to Zerubbabel, so just to the governor. So let's dive into today's oracle. We're told that God speaks through Haggai on the 24th day of the month, which means it's the exact same day as the last oracle, that Deb brought us last week, except this time God is directing his voice through Haggai to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. So who is this governor? Well, the text in Haggai only really tells us two things. One, that he is the governor. And secondly, who is the son of? That he's the son of Shetiel. But we can look to other parts of the Bible to find out a little bit more about who this man is. So in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 3, we get a genealogy and we often go, okay, why are these long lists in the Bible? And there is a reason. It's not just to be page fillers. And we find out who he is. It says that he's actually a descendant of King David. And therefore, we know that he's in the family line that's going to bring about Jesus, the Messiah. And then at the very start of Matthew's gospel, we have a confirmation of this. Matthew starts his gospel with a big, long genealogy, all the way from Abraham to Jesus. And in it, we find the governor of Judah. There he is, 11 generations, if I've counted correctly, uh, before Jesus, the Messiah. 
Furthermore, God then describes Zerubbabel in some very interesting ways. In today's passage, we are told that he is a servant, that he is chosen. Now, this is very similar to some of the language um, used to describe Jesus. But we're given an indication that Zerubbabel, he's not it. He's not the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Because God says, actually, he's like a signet ring. And what's a signet ring? It's something that was worn by priests or by kings or rulers. And on it was often the family crest to say, this person belongs here. And they would often use it with ink to stamp official documents to say, okay, this is, this is official. We know that this comes from the right family line. We know that this has authenticity. And so God is saying, okay, Zerubbabel, you are giving authenticity from your line. Something big is coming. It won't be you, but from your line. So there's an importance here to that line of David. So now we have that information about who it is that this oracle is addressed to, is speaking to. And I think it shapes much of our understanding around what God has to say to him. So let's read it. It says... I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealti, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Oh, wow, I don't know about you. That, that was pretty, that's pretty heavy, heavy language there, some wartime language, some scary language, and some language about earthquakes and shaking. And that's something that's completely beyond human control, earthquakes and natural disaster. So I wonder if you have ever been part of a natural disaster or an earthquake. I know we've had a couple in the last few years. We've had two. I must admit the one a couple of weeks ago, I completely slept through. I did not notice it at all. However, I recall one a couple of years ago when I was living in this apartment block in St Kilda. It was really old and it was already sinking and there were cracks in the walls and I know we'd had some meetings about the roof maybe falling in and my house one night started to shake and my housemate and I we looked at one another and we thought do do we have training for this I, I don't think we know what to do bewildered and uncertain we grabbed the cat and we thought let's run outside which I think is probably not what you're supposed to do but I wasn't confident the house wasn't going to fall down we Ended up being okay. The only thing that happened is some stuff fall, fell off the wall. You know, it, it wasn't a big earthquake, but it definitely stopped us in our tracks. It left us uncertain and in awe. So for in, in the Old Testament and in Old Testament times, it was very common language that they would talk about these natural disasters and shaking. Actually, the word shaking in Hebrew is reash. And it's used about 30 times in the Old Testament, three in this, in um, Haggai. In the Greek, there's also an equivalent word. And this shaking was to denote something that God did to make God's presence known to the people. And their response was to be in awe, to be in fear. But this shaking in the Old Testament could also denote that God was acting in holy anger. 
to bring down unholiness, to bring down brokenness. This shaking shows that God's appearance on earth rattles its very foundations and it denotes God's intention to intervene in human affairs for the sake of righting wrongs. And we see that here today too. We know that this whole book of Haggai has been concerned with building this Old Testament temple, the second temple, not as some worldly symbol of power or politics, but as a holy place to represent God's glory. And so here we get this powerful, powerful language from God about shaking away the powers of the earthly kingdoms. And by stressing the importance of the temple glory at the start of this chapter before what we read today and what we've been exploring over the last couple of weeks, and by linking its completion to cosmic shaking that will topple kingdoms, Haggai is stressing to us the sovereignty of God over all our human things that we make, all our human institutions. The ultimate power isn't Darius the king who was addressed at the start of this chapter. It is God whose temple Haggai places at the centre of the community. So that's great, but what does it mean for a 21st century Christian? Some of the questions we might have are, how do we interpret this teaching in the words of God? What is God trying to say by highlighting the glory of his presence and the tumbling of earthly kingdoms? What does it mean that this is addressed to someone in the family line of Jesus? Well, we know from week one, when we examine the New Testament text, that Jesus would come and name himself as this new temple and be the dwelling of God here on earth with us, God incarnate. So by naming Zerubbabel as the descendant in the line of David, as a servant, as a signet ring, as chosen, it points that God has a promise, not just for the people of Haggai, but for future generations that doesn't finish with this temple that they are building in Haggai's time. God is acting. God is raising up a new temple, a new plan to bring this messianic king that will bring about a new kingdom home that will be a source of hope for all nations, not just for Judah. And that, yes, indeed, God will shake old kingdoms and they will fall. And God's kingdom will be raised up, a kingdom that is unshakable. And so for help interpreting this, we can actually turn to the New Testament. We don't need me to interpret it. Let's, let's turn to the New Testament because they've interpreted this exact, um, this exact story from Haggai. It's in fact the only place that Haggai is referenced in the New Testament. and It's in Hebrews chapter 12. And it speaks to the image of God that the people in the Old Testament had as this scary God that made himself known through natural disasters, fires, storms. And then it takes that image and reforms it as an image based on Christ. And therefore it invites us to think about our experience of God's kingdom now and to come. 
So in Hebrews 12, we get a little bit of a parable about two mountains. So mountain one that we get is Mount Sinai. And I'm going to read today from the message translation. I don't usually do that, but I actually think it does a really beautiful job at conveying the message here and interpreting it for us. So it says of Mount Sinai, the place where uh, Moses was given the law. Unlike your ancestors, you didn't come to Mount Sinai, all that volcanic blaze and earth-shaking rumble to hear God speak. The ear-splitting words and the soul-shaking message terrified them and they begged him to stop. When they heard the words, if an animal touches the mountain, it is as good as dead. They were afraid to move. Even Moses was terrified. So then we get a second picture of a second mountain given to us, Mount Zion, which represents God's kingdom here and now and to come. It says, no, that's not your experience at all. You've come to Mount Zion, the city where the living God resides. The invisible Jerusalem is populated by throngs of festive angels and Christian citizens. It is the city where God is judge, with judgments that make us just. You've come to Jesus, who presents us with a new covenant, a fresh character from God. He is the mediator of this covenant. And then it talks about the two very different deaths that took place at these mountains to make these covenants. These covenants just meaning this agreement and mutual relationship between the people. It said, at Mount Sinai, there's the murder of Abel, a homicide that cried out for vengeance. But at Mount Zion, is the murder of Jesus, which became a proclamation of grace. So here we are, we've got this image of this mountain, which is a metaphor for the relationship that we now have with God and the home that we have with God. But it's also a picture of what's to come. The following verses in Hebrews 12 build on this teaching, and this is where they really quote Haggai and start to interpret. They say, his voice that time shook the earth to its foundations. This time he told us this quite plainly. He'll also rock the heavens. One last shaking from top to bottom, stem to stern. The phrase one last shaking means a thorough house cleaning, getting rid of all the historical and religious junk so that the unshakable essence stands clear and uncluttered. Now, I thought these are some lofty ideas, so it might be helpful to have a little bit of a practical uh, illustration. So I need a volunteer. Does somebody want to come be my volunteer? Don't worry, I'm not going to shake you. My goodness, don't everyone jump up at once. No, no, no. No frogs. It's uh, if you can bake, you can do this. I see Joe moving, but I know she looks really unclear. Okay, Christina, up you come. Okay. We'll drag this to the front. Oh, I dropped my illustration that was God. It's all good? I'm not claiming I can bake. You don't need to bake. So, here's what we've got we have got a bowl and a colander, and this is going to represent. God's kingdom. So, Christina, can I get you to put some of those big important rocks in the colander? Some or all? 
Well, you can put them all. So the big rocks that are in the colander, they are going to represent God. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit and God's redemptive work on the cross. Now there's some smaller rocks in there. Do you want to hold up, hold up one of the smaller ones? These are the fruits of the Spirit that flow from Christ. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Now, I'm going to chuck us in where these little rocks that I stole from a beach in Greece, I should have put them back, but they were in my bag when I came back. Can you chuck us in with God? Wonderful. So we're all in there in the kingdom of God, but we know that's not what we're experiencing right now. So would you be able to chuck in some of that raw sugar as well? And that is all of the earthly stuff. That is the powers of this earth that is suffering that is injustice so we're in there with God but we're also rubbing up against all of that gritty sugar now what I'd like you to do is can you please start to shake that cylinder that's okay I can I can put that back on later yeah can you give that a shake What's happening as you shake that, other than... Yeah. The sugar's coming through and the rocks and the pebbles are straying. Perfect. Well, when we shake it up, or when God shakes things up, all that's left is the good stuff. It's us, it's God, all of those powers of this world, all of that brokenness that we're rubbing up against us, making it hard for us to experience the fullness of the kingdom they have fallen out and now all that's left is this beautiful image of us with God and all of God's glory. Or as it says in Hebrews 12, you can have a seat. Thanks, Christina. It says in Hebrews 12, do you see what we've got left? An unshakable kingdom. And do you see how thankful we must be? Not only thankful, but brimming with worship deeply reverent before God. For God is not indifferent. He is not an indifferent bystander. He's actively cleaning house, torching all the needs to burn, and he won't quit until it's cleansed. So that image of God shaking is so that all that is left in this new kingdom of God is us with God's presence. And that is the promise of Haggai, that from Zerubbabel's line will come a new messianic king, Jesus, that God's kingdom is unshakable and that it is so good, where suffering doesn't exist and all are in a state of peace, love and righteousness. The good news is that we don't have to wait around for that kingdom through the life, the death and resurrection of Christ, God's new kingdom has already broken through. However, we also know that we're still sitting there with all of that sugar, all of that sin and brokenness. We're not yet fully experiencing the kingdom of God because other earthly things are here with us still. And so we're waiting on that return of the Messiah and that last final shaking We are in something that is called the now and the not yet. Now, as most of you know, I am very recently married. 
And that engagement period is really, really fresh in my mind. There was this year-long period when Jordan and I knew that we planned to be married, uh, but we weren't yet. I had an engagement ring on my finger, or I had it on my finger for part of it, symbolising that we would join and spend our lives together. But we actually hadn't walked over that threshold yet of saying I do. So in many ways, we had started to join our lives together. We joined our time. We had joined our friendship circles, our church life, our future hopes and our plans. Yet at the same time, we still kept things separate. We had two homes. We still did worship at two different churches and we had separate finances. So we were in this period of our relationship, which was now and not yet. And I have to say that I found that a joyful stage, but I also found it really, really difficult. It made me very impatient because in my mind, I was all in. I'd committed to a life with him, but it just wasn't made whole yet. And in many ways, I feel the same way about the kingdom of God. We're stuck in a tension of kind of being in it and experiencing it, yet there's still this kingdom that's not yet come and not yet complete in its fullness. We are those pebbles with it all and with the sugar. We're surrounded by all those big good rocks of God and the goodness of God's kingdom, but we're also surrounded by that gritty, gritty sugar that rubs up against us and makes life difficult and painful. And we long for a time when it will be shaken up and it will fall away. Well, in the New Testament, God talks a lot about this now and not yet. It says, in faith with Christ, he is ensured that we're already adopted in Christ, yet somehow there's more adoption to come. That we're already redeemed in Christ, but there will be more redemption to come. That we're already sanctified in Christ, yet not totally sanctified yet that we're already raised in Christ, but there is a final raising to come. And so as believers, we live in this tension. While the kingdom of God broke into this world through Jesus, all human suffering, all human pain, all difficulty didn't just disappear when Jesus came. In fact, it remains, and I think lots of us can attest to it in our lives. While the kingdom of God was happening in the present for Jesus, it was also yet to come in all its fullness in the future. So as we look forward in hope to the toppling of earthly kingdoms and suffering, to that shaking up and the raising of the kingdom of God, what can we do? Well, my invitation to you today is to have a kingdom perspective. And I know that's a bit cheeky because it's the name of our sermon series, but it's kind of where we were all going. As we are refreshed and reminded again of the promise of this unshakable kingdom to come, I invite you to reread Haggai, the two chapters, and to have kingdom perspective. Because of God's gracious gift through the Son Jesus, this new living temple, the gift of Jesus is eternal life in God's kingdom. And the promise of a divine kingdom where all that brokenness of our world is no more. 
And that should shape us. That should be the lens through which we live our lives. So I invite you to reread Haggai, reread your life with kingdom perspectives so that you have a couple of things, so that you have kingdom priorities, so that you have kingdom expectations, so that you have kingdom faithfulness, and most importantly, that you live for that kingdom promise of that which is right now and yet to come. Because the joyous promise of the wholeness of God's kingdom to come should not just be a painkiller or a balm to our current woes. It's not just nice thoughts and prayers. It should have a radical impact on the way that we live in the now and not yet. It should motivate us in love and humility and in action. So as we finish up this series, I'd like to pray with you all. Let's pray together. Loving God, we thank you that you speak to us through little hidden books in parts of your scripture. We acknowledge that this life is full of suffering and hardship as we live in this now and not yet. We acknowledge the joys and the gifts as well of this time and we thank you for Christ's presence in our lives and the gifts of your spirit which do work in and through and amongst us in this world. Lord, we just pray that we would come together to prioritise the building of your temple, the presence of your glory, that what is to come, Lord, would shape everything that we do and everything that we are, that that hope that is promised, a real promise in you, would impact every part of our lives. We ask this today afresh, but we ask it for all the days to come. Amen.